welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the CCM Investing Power Hour. Uh, this is the show where Ryan and I uh, just go through anything on our minds. And the only rule is that there is no preparation. So we'll hopefully get into some good discussion. I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about today. Uh, but yeah, no rules. And all we have here is just two guys talking. Hopefully people will join. Sometimes people join and ask questions. If you're listening on the podcast, you can join us at 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific time every Thursday on the Chit Chat Money YouTube channel. Uh, all right, Ryan. Yeah, these, these episodes get a strange amount of listens. I, I would not have expected people like to hear us riff so much, but uh, since, the, since the listeners enjoy it, we uh, will keep doing it for the time being. Yep. All right. And what is on your mind this week? Any anything exciting besides the market turmoil? Of course, we're officially officially in a bear market. Not not down nineteen percent. We're down twenty one percent now. I uh, I was actually reading Saudi America this morning, which was kind of interesting. Um, and that's that new Bethany. Not new. It's a Bethany McLean book on basically the oil industry and, and how sort of the origins, I guess, of fracking and how America kind of became, I, I mean, I'm not finished with it, so I don't know exactly how it finishes, but uh, how America became sort of an energy powerhouse. And I found it funny that Chesapeake Energy, which is like that stock that everyone gets on Robinhood for free when you sign up, like they had a crazy or like, origin story that I had no idea about. Yeah. And then their CEO, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you can research what there's what happened to their CEO. I believe that's the one where they had that crazy accident. Um, yeah. It's like, it, no one knows whether or not it was like a suicide or something, but it was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was like the day after he got some sentence or some ruling against him. Um, just a crazy story. And I had no idea I thought it was just some obscure energy company, but they were like a, uh, a powerhouse there for a little bit, um, where they were at least much larger than they are today. So kind of, I don't know, kind of a fascinating story. But yeah. That's, no. that's been, uh, that's been my morning so far. Have you been reading mm. anything that's uh, uh, not lately? Not really anything interesting investing related. Um, yeah, I guess. I picked up a book that it was like one of Bill Gates's recommendations. Uh, Lawrence Hamtel on Twitter, who's always putting out some nice book recommendations. Uh, this guy named Vaclav Smil, who is like a really big scientist into energy and stuff like that. So I think it's a similar sort of topic, but not as specific as kind of Saudi America. Kind of interesting on where sort of energy goes and how um, there's a lot of stuff that, not a lot of stuff, a lot of energy that goes into products. What are the big four that he lays out? Cement, plastics, ammonia, which is fertilizer for crops, for agriculture. And, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the fourth. But either way, the globalization around that and the complications are kind of interesting. It's a bit of a dense read, but I thought it was fascinating. And he's a bit snarky, which is kind of fun, but also I I would like maybe half of that much because he does he is mean to a lot of economists and stuff like that. He's got a, a bit of Munger vibes, um, which, you know, it is good sometimes, but I don't think you can have Munger yeah, all day, enter- every day. It's entertaining for sure. Yeah, that is for sure. Uh, what do you think of the MLS deal on Apple I TV? Like it. I like it as a consumer. Um, I worry that, well, my first thought would be like, they might be alienating the 50% of America who doesn't have Apple TV 
or or uh, doesn't have a smart TV, but they're keeping their deals with ESPN and I think Telemundo or Univision. So they should still get at least some of the games, but I think it's a smart move by Apple TV. I've been waiting for um, a streaming service to just gobble up the uh, like a league's rights and the MLS some people probably, I mean, a lot of people aren't that into soccer, but it's a growing sport. I think the median salary in the MLS has compounded at a double digit rate over the last decade. So the, the money that's being poured into the sport and the viewership is growing. And so I think Apple TV got like a, a good, I think it was the right move for them. I think it, it captures a lot of viewers that now have to sign up and have a reason to constantly subscribe. Yeah. It that. I think it's pretty smart as well. The sports rights are really complicated for these TV streamers and, and linear as well. And it's hard to kind of gauge what value you're getting or the return on spending. Say, well, MLS is probably a lot less. Do you know the number on the deal? Two and a half billion over 10 years. Um, I remember them saying that, but they get all the matches. Um, I, It's not like a crazy number. I think uh, ESPN and either Univision and Telemundo and Fox were all paying like, I think it was like 60 million, 70 million a piece a year. Um, these are all ballpark numbers. So I might be wrong on them. So if you balance it out to 250 million a year, the rights aren't exclusive, but they get all the games. That seems like a semi fair price to pay for a league that's growing. My concern as a viewer was it's only going to be the Apple TV commentators for all the games. Right. right. Which if they're like a total flop, like if they just absolutely suck, that ruins all the games. And uh, I don't know, that could potentially be concerning. Going to have to watch the games on mute. But I think it's the right strat. I want to tie this back to investing, not my soccer uh fans fanship but the uh i think that is the right strategy to keep customers subscribing Mm -hmm. because for the entire mls season i'll have that subscription which lasts a long time and if you can have like two leagues that span the whole year like where their season span the whole year you've got constant um you're minimizing churn i know those those rights are probably more expensive than you know some tv shows but it, it gets rid of my big concern was that all these streaming options are so disposable after you watch something that you like, like if you don't have something, you can always unsubscribe, then resubscribe Apple, like having streaming rights to a league that goes whatever six months eliminates that for me. Yeah, I think I agree. Totally. That combination of nice quality TV content, which Apple has, they're, they're serving kind of their own niche. They're not going for like reality TV stuff or anything like that, but the combination of that plus sports seems like a way better product offering just to keep people from churning. And I know everyone, but Netflix had churn problems and now Netflix is kind of getting uh, back to where everyone else with uh, decent churn problems. Although I believe they still have the lowest churn. It seems like Amazon's strategy with Thursday night football falls into that same regard, probably a bit expensive, but during football season, it's in, like if you're a prime member in the United States, you're not, and a football fan, you're not going to unsubscribe. And that's just really, really durable. And it probably leads to pricing power in the future. I mean, if they had the full, not, no, I guess no streaming service probably will get the full NFL slate, but if they got some of the Sunday NFL games uh, or a Monday night on Amazon prime, that could be big as well. The uh, difference to me is that prime video doesn't need a lot of that stuff for Amazon prime to be worth it. Yeah. But it still makes it that much. I mean, it maybe better. increases the pricing power, but like Apple TV I would not subscribe. I'm not a subscriber to Apple TV, but now I will be for the next 10 years, at least during the MLS season. They kind of needed this, I think. Like they need these type of deals because you don't have like, you don't get the one day shipping with Prime or whatever. Uh, yeah. They don't have that going for them as well. Yeah, I guess they Amazon's- compare it with like their iPhones or something, like mm-hmm. new iPhone sale. 
via Apple TV as well or something like that. Yeah, Amazon's coming from a way higher position of strength. And then I think the only last thing I want to ask on this part or this one is, do you think Netflix needs to try to go, I know they only want global stuff, to try to go for a global sports rights like uh, F1, tennis, golf, what are some other ones? I think that would be, well, Olympics is unique, but maybe one of those three or all three of those could really help them reduce churn because I, I'm getting into F1 and that season's almost year round. I think it's about three months of an off season. So nine months out of the year, they have a week race every other week. Basically, they have 23 in the season. I'm not going to be churning off if I can watch on Netflix. And it's such an easier way for me to watch than through the old janky um, whatever ways you can watch nowadays. We, uh, we've got a question from Connor Shilu. Shilu. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to wait. You don't want to answer what I just my thoughts there. Or I, I want to answer the question so in case they so it encourages people to stay on the uh, okay. keep keep hold that thought though. It just says he says thoughts on current hyper growth SaaS valuations. I think there's a chance that a lot of them aren't hyper growth into the future. Um, so that that kind of I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a. Well, it's a broad question. There's a, yeah. I think there's a spectrum of them. You got to treat it at the individual company level. Obviously, the valuations have come down, but you don't want to anchor. I know there's a lot of charts that go around uh, the last five years, price to sales multiples or um, EV to sales or whatever, any sort of broad-based multiple of, it's a, like, oh, all-time low since 2017 or something like this for these software companies. But you have to ask yourself, like, does that mean they're cheap? It, it just because you're anchoring to a, a time period when the multiple is higher doesn't mean the stock's a good buy now. I think you got to look yeah. at it at an individual level. Um, and that, that sales multiple, let's say it was higher five years ago, the forward sales growth was probably faster over the last five years than it maybe will be over the next five. So it's not, I mean. And you can say that for almost for certainty with enterprise SaaS because the last decade was just a huge tailwind of adoption as cloud totally boomed. Yeah, I'd say if you took the category as a whole, I imagine even though I I think the enterprise SaaS will grow, I don't think growth will be what it was. The other thing I'll add is I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, did not recognize how much of the the excess COVID demand or the or the quick acceleration because of COVID was actually just temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, one one company that I'm seeing it with right now is DocuSign, where their sales staff is quitting. A lot of their sales staff are quitting because there isn't the low-hanging fruit. Um, a lot of, uh, they, they talked about this, like they were almost uh, like customer support. The sales staff was almost just customer support because they were getting so many inbounds during COVID where it's like they need whatever, this many digital signatures to be allowed, this many seats that the companies do because they have to transition quickly. Now the sales staff is going out there like, can we upsell you? Can, can we cross sell you to, e-notary or whatever and they're like yeah we don't, we don't really need that anymore like we could do this in person if 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 it comes down to it so it's like some of those some of the companies i do think saw temporary accelerations and may even see declining revenue um over the over the coming year which is so hard to going from 40 or 50 percent revenue growth to negative like like declining revenue is so hard to imagine, but it's, it's happening for a lot of the companies, which is pretty crazy. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. 
Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, I got to be honest. I have not looked at SaaS recently really at all, um, which I guess is maybe uh, helping me not avoid some pain, but looking at it more generally, like I think I saw some charts that the average sales multiple is down to eight on a trailing basis. Could have been forward, not really sure. That seems reasonable for something that can generate like 20% plus earnings or profit margins. Um, that can has a you know path to grow. But when you have the uncertainty of future growth, which the market usually a lot of investors get nervous if there's a few bad quarters. Um, and you wouldn't really be surprised if a stock totally drops then like really like if, if something goes from like Ryan mentioned, 40% revenue growth, totally down to, to negative. I mean, that uh, that can totally throw investors for a, um, a loop. But you have to the difference between that and say a company that has a huge sales staff, maybe lower gross margins and can only get 10 to 15% profit margins. I mean, an eight times sales multiple feels very, very, very expensive unless you're growing extremely quickly. Um, something that comes to mind in that regard that we talked about a lot. I know everyone talks about this one is Shopify. They had a high sales multiple. It's come down to probably, well, I guess I haven't looked at it recently, probably around eight, right? Sales multiple. Um, that, okay. Yeah, I have a, I'll, I'll look at it right now. Okay. There's a difference between that and then Adobe, who has 40% profit margins, and then Shopify, which has like 45 to 50% gross margins, I believe, uh, ballpark, where their operating margins might be closer to 15% or free cash flow margins might be closer to 15%. I mean, it's just a huge difference. Um, but either way, the opportunity set, I think in general has to be better or else the entire sector was just a bubble. And I don't really believe that. <laughs> there was something that was... so. It, Shopify, just for context, has an enterprise value of thirty-two billion, according Whoa. to Coifin, and a five billion in revenue. Let me make sure that's right. Yeah, five billion, four point eight. So, what six? Just over six times revenue. Okay. Um, wow, that got cheap fast. Wow. Yeah, it's at three hundred dollars. It was at what seventeen hundred last year. Yeah, I think pushing two thousand actually. Yeah, the there was like this tweet that I saw that I'm gonna get it wrong, but it was basically like maybe paying developers four hundred thousand dollars a year isn't a sustainable business model. So like <laughs> plus stock. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, some of these companies might have ninety two percent gross margin, but or ninety percent plus, eighty percent plus. And it's so easy to say, like, oh, well, they could probably get to twenty or thirty percent of cash flow, cash flow margins, but they are competing so much for developer talent and paying so much. Like that's where their costs are, not in the cost of goods sold. Their costs are in yeah. the operating expenses. That's almost for SaaS companies, development talent almost is a cost of revenue. Yeah, kinda, kinda. It I isn't, mean- but you know, like you have to have it unless you have a business, unless you have a platform that's so sticky that customers will never leave like an Adobe, like maybe an Autodesk, or I think you could make the case for maybe CRM um, or probably office 365. Yeah, but they still need, it's the efficiency that the quality companies um, have, Okay, here's an example. Uh, and this is an industry we don't really focus on, but I thought it was really stark. There was the announcement of the Coinbase layoffs, which that company seems to, I think they just got to stop tweeting because it just creates a whole flurry of controversy. But they laid off, I think, 20% of their staff. 
and they had somewhere around like 9,000 employees. And then the other exchange, FTX, the founder there was like, we have just way, way less employees. And he, he was saying something about how most startups or early stage software companies have um, like 10 times as many employees as they necessarily need. And that is something I think in the future, I kind of want to focus on more as finding a potential investment because the companies like, and I wouldn't really, I don't like crypto at all. So I wouldn't invest in FTX, but I would be much more inclined to investing in an FTX than a Coinbase, just seeing those employee counts. Because if you're going to pay a developer, say your top developers in between $400,000 a year and a million dollars a year in total compensation, you want to be getting a lot of return from that. And it seems like maybe the developer community got a little, um, not, I don't want lazy is the wrong word, but like overconfident in how valuable they were to a company. If you get what I mean, where you could just be hired, you kind of do average work. It seems like there's a lot of stories like that floating around. Um, yeah, I, so I think employee, the employee numbers, the total employee numbers, and obviously that's a generalization, but the total employee numbers and the pace of hiring, which you can look at in all the annual reports, um, they're required to put employee count. I think that's kind of important for people to track. Yeah, it's it's really one of my biggest red flags when I, I don't like when management brags about how many employees they're hiring. Like, I, I understand what the indication is that we've got all this demand and we're able to meet it by by adding employees, but. We should. I should be able to see the improvement in demand and the financials or the, or the bookings and the backlog instead of like payroll or headcount. Uh, we got uh, another comment that basically says um, he, he's Connor. It's has, Connor, Connor's has, same guy. He's been listening that, yeah. on Power Hour on Spotify every week. Thank you for your listenership. Much appreciated. He was talk. He was kind of thinking about companies like CrowdStrike, Datadog, and Snowflake. Uh, that is. I, I'll speak on behalf of both Brett and I for this one, I would say those tend to be outside of our circle of competence. Uh, however, yeah. However, uh, enterprise cybersecurity. Yeah. Or not. Data yeah. Analytics. Some of those are, yeah. Uh, however, I will say Brad Freeman, who joins the show once a month on one of our not so deep dives, he does a lot of good work on CrowdStrike. He's helped me understand that a bit with his free newsletter. So go maybe check that out. And if you're looking at Datadog and Snowflake, there is a great website called Hypergrowth. Starts with three H's, so H H H, and then Hypergrowth. Uh, so Connor, if you want to check that out, that has some really really good stuff on Snowflake and Datadog. I think we under we did a snow a show on Snowflake. If you want to check that one out, give you the basics of the business. I think we understood it pretty good. But if you want to really understand it, I go to Hypergrowth website. All right, do you want to do the the other two questions, Ryan? Yeah. One. One uh, Nick says stock pitch idea. Since you're familiar with SFM, which is Sprouts Farmers Market, what do you think of IMKTA? I believe that's Ingalls Markets. Definitely has a dominant position in a growing market, Western Carolina particularly. Uh, we, I haven't taken a deep look at them. I know they were in Michael Burry's portfolio for a while. Um, Seems it intriguing. Looks, yeah, it looks interesting. We don't. Uh, I won't talk about Sprout since that was in the portfolio, but the uh, uh, grocery—I don't love grocery. Like it's it's a competitive business, but they tend to just end up getting too cheap. Like the market just seems to yeah. overlook them constantly, so it ends up being a good place to fish. But uh, like all else equal, it's not the business model that I'm probably looking for. It doesn't have yeah. Like, I wouldn't put it in my top advantages. Yeah. I wouldn't put it in my top 10 like business models. And I think in general, the only way we would maybe be interested in a grocery store if it's trading at, and it's hard to put the artificial numbers on there uh, or restrictions, but like at a PE or price to free cash flow below 10 is kind of where we get attracted to it because we know the growth is going to be so low. But the, what, makes it like not in the too hard pile is obviously grocery is pretty easy to understand. But one, the industry is durable. It's one of the most durable industries out there, whether people got to get food at some point. And two, um, they do well during an inflationary period. Now, if there's 
10% plus inflation for a sustained period of time, I don't think you know they're going to get hurt as well. But with moderate inflation, they actually do quite well just because, again, this is something that's a consumer um, staple and not a consumer discretionary product. So I like that aspect of the business a lot. And I also like the aspect that online sales haven't really taken off. I know Instacart has decent market share. Uh, there's decent online sales in Walmart, but it's still a tiny part of the business. It's, it's around 10%, I think, for a lot of these places for, for grocery. And there's a real estate advantage as well. So those three combinations kind of make it attractive, uh, but it's not some super high quality business model at all. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. But I, I don't know. It, just on a quick look at Ingalls Markets, I might take a deeper look, but I can't really, sorry, Nick, can't provide any crazy value uh, to that question right now. Jonas Anderson asks, thoughts on Meta, um, otherwise known as Facebook, and it's in a past life. Uh, thoughts on their stock, price to earnings of 10, low teens growth, cheap or reasonable. Greetings from Denmark. Ooh. Go there global. we go. First, I think that's our first international uh, watcher. Although on the podcast, I know a lot of listeners are from Europe. Uh, the Nordics, huge investing community out there. Yeah. The as for Meta, it's to me, it's like a, just a total conundrum, and it's something that I've looked at on several occasions. Our our friend of the show, Matt Cochran, has I believe pitched them before on the on the show. Uh, yeah, we've he, talked he puts, about him. Mm-hmm. He does some great analysis on them over at Seven Investing. Um, I just I love the core business. Obviously, one of the best business models because of the network effect. But i i don't I don't love this whole VR metaverse thing. I I, ju- I just really don't, and I don't like. I, I'm just not a fan of the capital allocation. The it, it's. I mean, I do think they will generate probably stable, if not growing, cash flows from their core uh, family of apps: WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook. I'm, I'm missing any there. Messenger, but that's kind of a part of Facebook. Yeah, but I if if the bulk of that cash is going to some is essentially being incinerated. Let's say yeah, let's say not- let's say it's not being incinerated, but let's say that. Meta, Oculus, it was a flop. Let's say they pour $50 billion over the next five years into this initiative and it generates $0 in cash and probably negative cash and $10 billion in revenue. I'm going to call that incinerated. And that is, I mean, that's detrimental to your returns because that is your, on a trailing basis, it looks cheap, but you're, you're getting as a shareholder now, you are getting the future cash flows of the business, which that cash isn't going anywhere other than to the developers of this Oculus that potentially doesn't become anything. Yeah. And it's not it's a just huge Oculus. risk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's, but, yeah. there's a lot of different elements to their, uh, all, all their VR stuff, but it just seems like a giant risk that I wouldn't be comfortable with as a shareholder. And I'm just not a huge believer in it. So uh, that's, I guess those are my two gripes. Irish born investor friend on Twitter says I'm finally here. So we got, we got him on, on in the chat as well. <laughs> big, big, uh, the big European audience say, yeah, I mean, with meta, it's so, it's so interesting. Cause I do think there is a world where it is, it, whatever, what from today's prices to say 2030, um, if they buy back stock at an attractive rate, if they don't just hemorrhage money in these new VR investments, you could have 15% compound of returns through 2030. If they buy back enough stock at these levels, I mean, they can, they can do a lot. They got a conservative balance sheet. Um, Instagram seems to be executing really well to counter position against TikTok. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. And that's great. 
WhatsApp still has a ton of potential. And I love what they're doing with uh, payments in international markets, although it's not going to be that meaningful. I don't know why I'm still out. You, you, were, you were in Mexico and you said WhatsApp was like a way bigger business than you thought, right? Yes, it is. Not, not necessarily business, but just usage. Um, it is the combination of messaging. So anyone that would be using iMessage in the United States, all that stuff's on WhatsApp. They also have some status stuff. Like uh, it's a little bit Snapchat-like for a lot of people. People posting statuses, kind of like, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, sorry, not statuses, stories. They call it status. Um, and then it also replaces email communication for a lot of businesses, for WhatsApp business. So it's pretty sticky with a lot of these customers. So like any sort of company I was communicating with or any sort of individual I was communicating with, it was all on WhatsApp. And that's probably undervalued, but the business is so large and WhatsApp generates so little revenue right now that I have trouble seeing how valuable that could be. Although it is a bit of a call option over the next decade. Um, I think it just comes down to growth of Instagram. Facebook doesn't fall off a cliff. Uh, and then how much money they're burning and their, their buybacks. It seems like there could be a path forward here, but I am, I don't know. Yeah. The, the cynic in me just says like, cut the metaverse spend, start buying back stock, but would they, they can be do op- both. could they ever be obsolete if they don't keep investing? Is yeah. Pos- is it, that's probably the big concern for I think the, management. The holdup for me is I don't like social in general. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to predict and you constantly see new competitors come into play there. What, what's that new one that was up on the charts? Be real. Yeah. I don't, know I, I don't do these. I don't know the social platforms at all. I'm like a, that I'm one's, like a grandpa. I think that one's gimmicky. That one's like, I know how it works. It, you like, it sends you a ping once a day at any at a random time and you just have like you have 20 minutes or whatever to take a picture of what you're doing and so it's meant to be like that's the authentic you it's like real social media um but something tells me that's not gonna be like that something tells me that's a product not a company and uh tiktok though seems that seems to have eaten everyone's lunch and you're just competing on time spent yeah which is like the most competitive place in the world. That that part still, does kind of concern me about social, but the stock's still cheap, though. The stock's still cheap. I uh, it it's not as egregious as the people talking about Coinbase at three times trailing PE, but I do like. Can we talk about that? Did you see this this uh, uh, petition to have the executives removed from employees? At Coinbase, no. Explain. All right. Hold up. The, I want to make sure I get it right. The uh, basically a bunch of employees banded together and said, "Like we need to remove the executives." Um, and Brian Armstrong posted it on Twitter and said, "This is so dumb." <laughs> and I'm like, "Dude, Dude that's why would res- you do that?" And then they fired 15 percent of their workforce or something like that. Like Whoa. two weeks later. That was okay. I thought that was more like after the firings. Well, I think it was not related, but hmm. <laughs> this guy's just like lost the ball. Brian Arms. I, I, I couldn't think of like a more poorly managed business right now. Let me, uh, let me pull it up. Plus, I think their demand is just evaporating. And there's all these uh, platforms just losing or just locking up accounts? Like, are you serious? Yeah. I, uh, well, yeah, we don't want to do any schadenfreude because we have been crypto haters. Part of me smiles when all this stuff goes down, but it does really suck that these companies treat people so badly. Yeah. <laughs> no words from Ryan. I was on mute. I was on mute. I'm I'm looking for this uh this hilarious tweet. The uh oh gosh, I can't find it now, but the uh 
it honestly might have taken it down. Mm, most no, likely. No, most yeah, likely. no, no, no. He did not take it down. Um, okay. okay, I'm pulling it up. The according to why so it was a post on Why Hacker News. It says Coinbase employees petition to remove execs. Um, Brian Armstrong posted it and tweeted, "This is really dumb on multiple levels." Well, of course, it's dumb from your view. And then he goes on in this like giant thread to say, um, "I want to make sure I get it right." We, it, basically, it's praise in public, criticize in private. Like wow. that's that's our culture. But he starts the thread with, "This is really dumb on multiple levels." So, so he's yeah, he's hypocritical on that. And then but, all right, yeah. so that was June tenth, June fourteenth. Another one of these threads, which I always laugh whenever I see him starting a thread. Today, I shared that I've made the difficult decision to reduce the size of our team at Coinbase by about eighteen <laughs> percent. Come on. Yeah, it just doesn't look great. It doesn't look great, and the fact that they cashed out on that direct listing. Um, yeah, I don't know. All right, um, let me scroll through the. All right, you were talking about. Uh, you were talking about the Formula One rights and, and, and the and, and international sports rights for specifically for improving Netflix's churn. Do you think here's maybe a better question there? So they said they're going to invest a lot of money into mobile games. Do you think it would be better spent to get some sports rights, either Formula One, maybe a tennis, uh, golf? Those are the three I was thinking of for international rights that are popular. Um, no, you don't, you, you don't, what, what, no, uh, I mean, obviously the formula one stuff was a huge success, but, and, and if they were going to go the sports route, I think international is probably the way to go because they already have such sort of a sh- stranglehold on the, like America. Like well, they the said that they said that they would only do international. That's why, I'm, that's why I mentioned that. Um, but I, and, and international, I mean, uh, global. Like it's including the U.S., but yeah, but it's not solely the U.S. Yeah, the uh, I would not like them to replace their gaming spend, though. Unlike most people, I actually think the gaming strategy is a good idea, especially if they go with some sort of an like a lower price tier, because the mobile games are pretty unique. They, they just announced that they're coming out with um, like a Queen's Gambit based video game that's like chess tutorials and then you can play against other people like i could see chess. that it's chess <laughs> yeah but mobile chess like i mean think think about how popular chess was after the queen's gambit you know i don't yeah. know if you remember that like keyword mm-hmm. searches for chess were way up on google the uh I, I i could see that being a huge success and they're also like it's just a way to get more people i mean right now you have to be a member to play these games you have to be a subscriber, but if you can be a lower price subscriber, let's say two to three dollars a month, it's essentially the Apple Arcade business. And like I could see that actually working out. I think a lot of these mobile games certainly have a niche that they can target and have success with. And it introduces a lot of people to Netflix to to potentially become a thought, are they, subscriber. Are they available outside the Netflix subscription? Uh, they were only within the Netflix subscription. They are, but I'm saying if you end up doing, they're, they're talking about this lighter tier, ad supported. Mm, gotcha. That seems like something that could work to me. Yeah, it kind of. I think you back. have to do it. I think you have to have for the games component to be a big success. I think you have to have some sort of an ad supported tier, or else you're already getting subscribers that are just playing on their phones. It doesn't really seem doesn't seem like a huge value add to me. Mm. Yeah, that's. I I don't know. I have no good opinion on the gaming one. So I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm open to being wrong. Two more. Okay, wait. Last thing I'll say. There's two more questions in the chat that I want to answer. But the uh, uh, last thing I'll say on Netflix: Are you signing up for the real life Squid Games? No, but that's a good idea from them. The they. That's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I it's like a good that. idea. Yeah, making that reality show. Um, I do think they can be more successful if they focus on their tent. What do they call those things? Tentpole. The successful shows like uh, Squid Games, 
Squid Game, um, Stranger Things. The Witcher's a little different because it's already it was already a video game. Um, and like Bridgerton and kind of trying to make more stuff off of those brands instead of just plowing, just constantly having these new, new, new stuff. Uh, Stranger Things game. I think they should probably invest a ton into that. Kids would love that. They're doing uh, right now. They're doing three. I think it's three games are going to be coming out in 2022 that are based off Netflix shows. Queen's Gambit game. One's like La Casa de Papel. I've never watched that. And then there's a third one that I don't know, but those are all popular. So I think they're kind of taking that approach that you're talking about. I would hope. Yeah. I heard, I read something that they were doing that, but who knows? It's they, they changed their strategy a lot. So two questions. One from Jonas Anderson. He says, do you believe Fang stocks will outperform the market over the next 10 years? Thanks for the answer, guys. Uh, I'll let you go first. Okay. Preface this with, there's a lot of uncertainty. And what, what's Fang here? So Fang is, let me just kind of think of him in my head. Facebook, Let's call it Alphabet. FanMag. Let's call it FanMag. No, well, he says Fang. Okay. I feel like including- people have to include Microsoft now. Okay. You include Microsoft. Netflix is in there. I will go. No, I think it's always Netflix, even though NVIDIA is much larger. They always, it's that no one really considers NVIDIA. The N is interchangeable. I would go with yes. But as you can tell by the tone of my voice, not a strong answer. I think they trade very reasonably. Well, the, the, Difficulty here is that FanMag will drive market returns over the next 10 years, I imagine. So the majority well, of them. You're, you're, you're discounting the old Tesla there. Come on. This is only what, 2%? Yeah. Well, less? Uh, probably less now, but. Yeah, I think FanMag will do really well. Especially because I mean, energy is still so, you know, doing so well right now. If you kind of get what I mean there. Uh. Uh, not quite keep going like since energy is had a huge resurgence the starting point of kind of competitive returns within the s&p 500 is it, it's better position for fan mag right now yeah it's, uh, that's probably accurate the i like i mean facebook we kind of just talked about it it's a bit of an anomaly but apple amazon microsoft google can we call those maybe for the best businesses ever yeah, well, I don't know about Amazon retail to TBD, <laughs> but uh, yes, I, agree. I think they'll figure it out. The, uh, I mean, those are let's call them four of the best businesses ever trading at. I mean, Google and Microsoft, I believe, are trading at fairly reasonable multiples now. Amazon is as well, assuming they can get back to cash flow yeah. positive or at least break even on their retail business. Um, or at least stop hemorrhaging money. I, I, yeah, I'll take that over the market for the next 10 years. Definitely. Yeah. Mine, mine's a little more confident than yours. All right. Next question. This one's uh, a little more fun. We do own Wix. So we'll <laughs> oh, try not fun. to pump it too much. Um, it says Wix trading at a Shopify multiple or Shopify trading at a Wix multiple, which happens first. It's a good oh, question. Wow. You better for Shopify shareholders, I hope. That that doesn't trade at a Wix multiple because that would be a lot of downside from here. Okay. Two. All right. Let me let me rephrase the question then. Let's assume they're at the same multiple. Which do you take? Oof. That's a good question. Right now, it's I think Wix's Wix's EV to sales is probably just like off the top of my head one point in between one point five and two times. I think Shopify's at six times. Let's say they meet in the middle, three and a half times. Who yeah, but that's not this. There? That's not this question. That's not this question. I think Wix goes. Wix going to six is more likely because Shopify going down to one point five is very unlikely to me. Yeah, that <laughs> but never, reasonable. never say never. But going from fifty times to six times seemed fairly unreasonable. To, no, to no, me as well. no, I, the, that is, uh, no. That that I disagree with that. Let's okay. Let's let's say Wix is so Wix's management has said that they think they can get to twenty uh, percent free cash flow margins by twenty twenty five. I think was the number. 
if the business is generating uh, 20 cents on every dollar in cash, I don't think it makes sense for them still to be at one and a half times revenue. So I would say it's more likely that Wix re-rates up than Shopify re-rating down if management's right in their projections. Every company looks good if management's projections are correct. But That's right. Every investor day, I mean, if you watch those, the market's going to rip higher. I'd love to see just an investor day that's like, we're not going to make it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I would, an investor day to short a company. Yeah, we are liquidating. That's the whole investor day. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to use this as a liquidation event, that's, yeah. uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be quite the investor day. I do like that question though. That's an interesting one. And you know what? Yeah. People like, no one would compare those two companies during like last year. They're like, oh, they're two totally different businesses and they are still fairly different businesses. But now everyone's like making the comparisons because of uh, the valuation re-rating. So it's kind of interesting. We got another question. Which is this has been fun. I like having a active chat. Tyler Hamill, have you guys found a single former SPAC you like? A lot of names to sort through, but a lot of names down more than ninety percent. Oh, I got one. Sorry. Go ahead. So there's one. Let me uh, read you off this capital structure here. Market cap 191 million. Cash investments 263 million. Debt 2.6 million. So enterprise value negative 70 million. That is Latch, who kind of had to, they cut a lot of employees um, and they're hemorrhaging money right now. So don't trust that EV, but I I thought that was interesting. That's the only one that I kind of like their business model. Um, I do think they'll probably end up burning the majority of that cash pile. But if they come out the other side, the stock could be cheap here. It's just really, really uncertain. Like, there's, I, I'm I feel like you can say that for every spec. You can say, no, that. this one has great unit economics. Latch, yeah. I think, Latch, I believe, has great Could. unit economics. Could. Um, no, it does. It does. How much are they burning right now on every dollar in revenue? Oh, well, a lot on a cash flow basis, but their software margins are fantastic. It's just, yeah, but whether you don't they can get the software up. margins without the hardware implementation. So the hardware implementation is a part of the unit economics. Eh, sort of. Not after they get installed at a at a at an apartment building, but but they have to get enough installed first. That's yeah. I don't know. It feels like such a tiny chunk of revenue right now. I still. I, that's the only one. That's the only spec that I follow. Matterport's interesting, but I really that one is just kind of one of those. Like I don't understand the competitive landscape, kind of. For Matterport, um, another yeah. one that is pretty interesting, but isn't down very much. We had the CFO on on a recent episode, Haggerty. It's not sort of like it's not your typical SPAC. They aren't really uh, they aren't hemorrhaging money, and they aren't like some newfound idea. They've been around for a long time, and just I think maybe chose the wrong way to go public. Uh, well, the State Farm had a SPAC or something, or Markel had a SPAC, and they were already investors, something like that. Yeah, and State Farm and Markel invested, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's like, you're not dumpster diving like you might be with some of these other companies that are like down 95%. Hired, I think, trades at like 10 times book. So, yeah, it's not cheap. And yeah. But it's a good business that grows constantly and has a sort of a State Farm, if, to me, if state so they they are the lead insurer, the the lead specialty insurer of classic vehicles or like the enthusiast vehicle market, and so um, it's kind of like this niche. And State Farm, who's one of the largest national insurers, basically partnered with them, and nine out of ten of the largest national insurers have partnered with them. So that's kind of to me validation that this is uh, a market that is hard to compete with and that uh, Haggerty is a little bit difficult to disrupt. Maybe a little bit of a moat there. Yeah. Uh, shouting out her own interview. Listen to, listen to him. What was that? A few weeks ago, something like that. 
Pretty interesting company. Never heard yeah. of it, but seems very attractive. Uh, SoFi. Oh, SoFi is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's fairly interesting. I was looking at it this morning. Good, solid business, solid business for sure. Yeah, the uh, the student loan moratorium has hit them pretty hard because so much of their interest revenue comes from loans held. Uh, uh, so that's a bit of a hang up until this kind of gets solved. Yeah, and they're investing pretty heavily in their other offerings, which is like if you're investing heavily and not collecting revenue for a sustained period of time, you're going to be burning cash. So that's that's a bit of the hang-up, but still an interesting model, and they continue to grow members. Plus that Galileo thing, that API business, continues to grow. It accounts for like 20% of revenue now, so yep. interesting business. Like we mentioned earlier, Brad Freeman, he covers that one too. Um, so he has a lot of good write-ups on that. Yeah. All right. Here's something before we end. We have about 10 minutes, nine minutes before Ryan has to hop off. Uh, inflation predictions that are meaningless. All right. Here's what the our good macro guy, Colin Roche on Twitter said. Uh, my crystal ball is pretty hazy, but here's how I see this playing out. One, oil booms into the summer. That's disappointing. Two, commodities crash Q3, Q4. Three, defaults surge by Q4. And four, debt deflation becomes the dominant risk by Q1 2023. I don't know why he's thinking these things, uh, but he did show a chart. Go through it one more time. Go through it one more time. One, One, oil booms into the summer. So continues to boom. Two, commodities crash Q3, Q4 probably because from demand destruction. Three, defaults start surging by Q4. Four, debt deflation becomes dominant risk by Q1 2023. And he is showing a chart, I believe, and I'm not a credit guy. Uh, He's showing a chart of the high yield spreads and they're starting to creep up again. So I think that was kind of his indicator, part of the indicator there, um, which they typically do during recession. Either way, that if that happens, inflation would go down. What is your guaranteed to be wrong inflation prediction? Because uh, we just had it come out, what, last week? Last Thursday? Yeah, a week ago. Well, Colin Roche is definitely smarter than me. So I might, I might just agree with his take. That seems fairly plausible. Something else that that kind of sparked for me. So I, I don't have an inflation take like... No, you had to make a predict. You had to make a prediction. Persists for persists at more than five percent for the next three years. Wow, that's pretty strong. That's above. That's above what a lot of you're, you're in the inflation sticky. Ten year, the ten years at five percent in twenty twenty four. But then you said on the other show, you said it'll it'll abate. Within within the decade, right? The we'll it will obey it. over yes, over ten years. It will the the deflationary factors, i.e., uh, innovation, which I, I know that's like the whole arc thesis. So, but it's not, right. I mean, not some arc truther, but like obviously that's helped, like uh, deflation over time. Shale shale was innovation. Um, so I think yeah, inflation will be. By, I don't think we'll have nearly as much inflation by the, the next decade. Uh, but that, that brings something up for me. Remember how everyone was talking about how if you don't have debt, you can't go bankrupt like yeah. last year. And that, I mean, that kind of made sense to me at the time. But if you don't have debt now and you don't have cash flow, I think eventually you'll have debt. Yeah, because they're the only ones that'll give you money. That to me seems like it's funny how quick you can turn from a no debt company to a debt company. Yeah, a lever company. Yeah, interesting. So you can, you will go bankrupt eventually. <laughs> yeah, the assuming you take on some debt. Yeah, it's hard. I think the. <laughs> There is always uncertainty if you're not generating steady cash or not steady, consistent 
cash because we have a few portfolio companies that generate consistent cash and they took advantage of the debt markets and got say 20, 30 debt at 3%. And with inflation, that's gonna be beautiful to have, um, especially if they just start buying back stock at cheaper prices. But the only way they are able to take advantage of that is because they're generating cash. So if you're not profitable, it just leads to so much more complications. All right, we've got five minutes left, and we got a great question here because it paints us in a good light. So I'm going to go ahead. Well, and somehow I'm reading it. Uh, part partially, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it kind of paints us in a good light. He says, "Did you guys feel?" And this is Jonas Anderson. Thank you again for the question. Did you guys feel the FOMO for any of our listeners that don't know what that means? Fear of missing out uh, in 2020, 2020 to the 2021 market, which was kind of when everything was booming. You guys remained skeptic over a lot of growth names like C Limited, which went up every day, but is down big now. Like, I think we probably did get some FOMO in that it just felt like everyone was posting their holdings and we're up like 100% every year. But the, we, I would say, remained fairly price disciplined relative to other investors, but relative doesn't really matter. So it's like a we lot still of the made companies, some mistakes with we price. made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Not I, I do think generally we ended up turning over a lot of rocks and ignoring them, even though we like the businesses. I see limited in particular, it helped that it wasn't domestic because I didn't quite have a good grasp on the business. Yeah. I definitely had FOMO I don't know if FOMO is the right word. I had doubts about myself when crypto was rising, uh, when something like Shopify was at 60 times sales and I was saying it was ridiculous at 20 times sales. Um, yeah, that was I, because people people kind of hated it, hated us for it because we were like critical of... It's like the companies can do no wrong at that point, which that didn't make us popular with a lot of the people, a lot of the shareholders of certain companies. But so that was probably the, like the prevailing feeling as opposed to FOMO more of like, are we risking relationships or reputations by being too skeptical or cynical? That was probably more of my feeling. Yeah. The, yeah, it's interesting. I think if you feel FOMO, you got to like, because people definitely do. People talk about that. That's not really something that is a huge concern for me psychologically. But if you know that you get FOMO, you need to create some artificial barriers or rules-based things to keep you from buying a electric vehicle spec with no revenue at a $60 billion valuation, something like that. You kind of get, does that make sense? You think, Ryan? Yeah, I think sometimes, even though I say no hard rules in investing, I think certain hard rules help like avoid de- detrimental mistakes. Let's say you had a, a hard line at nothing over 20 times sales, which most people probably should. The, even though you might miss some, you're probably going to be the better for it. Uh, net, yeah, net, you'll be better. Um, and it helps you ama- avoid making the easy mistake of overestimating what a company can grow at, which is so easy to do when times are good. I mean, how many people extrapolated out like 30% revenue growth for a lot of these SaaS enterprise companies for the next decade? It was very easy to do at that time, or even other companies, not just SaaS enterprise, because they had five years of that or five years of 70 or 80% growth. It's super easy to extrapolate out 30%. Most companies do not achieve that. So especially in a when capital isn't quite as cheap as, as yep. it is today. Last question before we have to go, because we got one minute left. How do you evaluate names right after a big acquisition and before their first report as a combined business? That's a tough one. Hopefully they put out a good prospectus that could be helpful. Uh, you said take two interactive for an example, take two interactive had a, I think it was like a 400 page S four that was really helpful. And they went through like independent projections for each business that I found 
to be pretty useful. Yeah. That was only like two pages of it. That was probably what you needed to, needed to actually read. Most of it's like lawyer yeah. stuff, but yeah. And then management and any commentary on the conference call can also be helpful. Acquisitions are, I would say maybe a great, like an area that I'm not great with to turn, like I, I can always envision the synergies, which is probably the bad way to look at most acquisitions. Yeah, I like to look at what they said during their merger presentation. And then a year later or a year and a half later, was it close? And if so, then maybe that, you know, we're right about it. But if not, what went wrong? All right, we get it. We get a wrap up. Yeah, I think that's going to have to do it. Okay, well, make sure if you're listening, I know we had a good audience today, but if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or wherever, join us 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern live on YouTube every Thursday potentially Wednesdays, um, sometimes. Review us on Apple or Spotify. That's the easiest way to do it. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. 